Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 249. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a quick word of prayer. Avinu, Malkinu, our Father, our King. As we um, once again uh, approach this time where we can come together, we thank you, Lord, for bringing us together, for gathering us together, like-minded individuals, those of us who are hungry for your word, those of us who want to fellowship with one another and uh, seek your face and to make ourselves available to be witnesses, to be ambassadors, using this time, Lord, as a time to be equipped, um, to be prepared, to get ready, um, using this time to just talk with one another, to meet with one another, to pray with one another, to um, uh, laugh and cry with one another if it comes to that. But thank you, Lord, for this um, time that we can meet. Uh, I pray that you'll be with each and every uh, student that joins me on a weekly basis for these live classes. No matter how large or small the group, I'm privileged to be able to uh, congregate with them, uh, even if it's not in person. Um, it gives me a time when I can uh, have this sense of fellowship, uh, since there's uh, little to nothing that I can do by way of a live uh, congregation here where I live. So thank you, Lord, for um, the students who have made it a point to meet with me and take time out and to meet with me um i i can't express in words how grateful i am for uh the friendships that have developed uh over the years through through the internet so thank you lord that um uh, you have drawn them and drawn us all together in this place be with those who also watch the videos after i upload them those who listen to the podcast or um go to my websites are tuned into my newsletters and 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 things like that lord it just uh, um i'm humbled to know that uh, this material is reaching an audience around the world and people are being blessed it's it's all to your glory lord i'm not seeking any of the glory myself um i'm just uh, thankful that you have uh, included me in this um this great commission that we like to call it of spreading the good news sharing your name sharing your kingdom um, uh, honoring your torah and uh, uh living lives that are pleasing to you continue to raise us up and give us an opportunity to witness. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me for these live internet studies. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. And the live internet study is an hour and a half long. It is broken up into two segments. Segment one is an hour long given over to a study called Eschatology, a biblical study of end time events, where we talk about end time topics with a view towards actually really doing a study on the book of revelation almost a verse by verse but as you can see on your screen right now there's a topical index made up of 18 different topics and we've been working our way from one all the way down through we're almost right in the middle we're right at topic number 10 now we just finished looking at matthew chapter 24 with yeshua's all of it discourse part one and two that was topic eight and nine now we're ready to jump headlong into a topic that is quite popular according to my estimation and my experience with dealing with these topics we're going to be talking about rapture views and this will just be an overview tonight for those of you who've never studied end time prophecy or eschatology anything like that this is the topic that in my experience again from traveling and speaking at different churches and having studies online this is the topic that is either very controversial you get really heated and emotional about it or 
you just tune out and you say, well, you know, I'm, I don't really care if there's a rapture or when it will be if there is one, because it'll just kind of all pan out in the end. It'll all just work itself out. God will work everything out. I don't need to focus on anything. And just to be sure, I want to make, I want to make sure that people know that in this set of topics of 10, 11, and 12, where we're going to be focusing on rapture, what I'm not going to be doing is date setting. No, no, and no. I'm not trying to make any claims on when I know, uh, if I know when Jesus is returning, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Although, within the scope of a study on eschatology, there is the sense that if you take a literal face value hermeneutic and approach the Bible in a normative sense of the words were given so that we could better understand God and his plans, in other words, the Bible wasn't given to confuse us. If you take a face value hermeneutic and do not spiritualize everything away, then or allegorize, then I believe that there are details about the second coming of Yeshua that can be known, perhaps even down to the day. And uh, we've talked about in the bet in the past. There are certainly themes and symbols and signs i believe that we should be looking for that will indicate certain events are about to take place or are taking place or etc etc so while date setting is something that i shy away from i absolutely do endorse or encourage uh, people to believe that the topics that we're going to be talking about can be best understood if you un if you um if you interpret them in a literal manner. Um, so we should be looking for certain things down the road. Uh, and when I say we, I'm talking about believers. Obviously, the world in large doesn't really have a perspective, a clue. They're largely in the dark. Um, and we'll be talking about that. So let me give you kind of an overview of what we're going to go in this part, this topic 10, 11, and 12, which as far as I can tell, just by looking at the sheer number of tabs I've got open in my browser right now, about 20 or so, this topic is going to stretch out easily a few months, um, but I hope you don't get lost because of the forest, you know, forest for the trees principle. So let me just jump through some of the tabs real quick and show you in advance, uh, kind of pique your interest, whet your appetite as to where we're going to be going in this topic 10, 11, 12 on the rapture and things like that. So just first looking at the topic list, topic 10 is rapture views and overview. There are three, maybe four main rapture views within Christian circles that we're going to be looking at. And um, it's helpful to get an idea of what those views are and why. We'll look at that first. We'll, we might even be able to cover all of that tonight because that's somewhat short tonight and tomorrow or something like that. And then from there, we'll move, we'll jump into the part that's going to occupy most of the meat of this, this, um, topic, this uh, section, which is topic 11, making a case for the pre-wrath view of the rapture. And if you've never heard that term before, um, I encourage you to give me an audience. Just let me try to present a case where I believe that this is a view worth uh, sitting up and listening to or worth taking serious and if you hold to one of the other views, that's fine. As I'm going to mention over and over again during this section what view of rapture you what view of rapture you hold to whether it's um one of the three or four or whether you don't have any uh belief in a rapture at all the most important part is do you have a relationship with yeshua 
That's the most important part because no matter what view you're holding, you must have a perspective that Yeshua is Lord in order for you to be counted among the righteous and to to um, be uh, in a place where uh, God's coming kingdom is of benefit to you. In other words, obviously, if you're not a Christian, then um, none of this really matters to you. Uh, you know, uh, allow allow the gospel to penetrate your hardened heart first. That's the prior. That's the priority. So we'll make a case for a pre-wrath view. I say we. I'm going to push hard for that. It's only because this is the view that I believe is not only the the more accurate scriptural view, but I also believe that it is a view that in the end will prepare us as Christians, as a church, as a body of believers, both Jew and Gentile. It will prepare us to understand where we might be able to be play, where we might play a part in God's end time scenarios as everything's coming down. Remember, there's a lot of players in this end time game. There's not just Christians in the church. There's Israel, both saved and unsaved there's the world at large there's uh the evil coming new world order um there's going to be a lot of moving parts and uh it, as far as i can understand it's going to affect everyone on planet earth in one way or another so to the to the degree that you are either prepared or caught off guard then you might want to start paying attention to some of the um details about this end time drama that's about to unfold so topic 11 is going to take a, a, a lot of time because i don't want to lose anyone i want to i want to put as much detail in there so that i can answer questions and present a case uh efficiently um completely and then lastly we'll round out the whole kind of rapture topic with topic 12 rapture views a final analysis kind of put a bow on it uh see where we've got where we where we come um, draw some conclusions. I'll even do some parts where I will purposely look at the weaknesses of the view that I hold to, known as a pre-wrath view. And so, in all fairness, to let people come to their own decisions. So, let's look at some. Just like I'm going to flash through some of the thumb, uh, uh, the uh, the tabs that I've got open, just show you where I'm going to be going. As we should always be doing, there are major parts of the bible that should be driving your theology and your understanding of any given topic don't just follow any given pastor or internet teacher or read any book and go wow i liked what i read i liked what i heard and therefore i'm going to follow that perspective because it tickled my emotional ears don't do that all right be a berean take all of your thought theology back to the bible as the ultimate source so with that i'm just jumping through some passages that i can recommend they're very brief really but daniel 12 has a lot of um detail as as far as a kind of a building up to the giving some timing of some of the major events that, that will happen when we start getting down to the what we're going to be calling the last seven years of um humanity or history on planet earth prior to the millennial kingdom being ushered in the thousand year time frame when jesus will reign bodily here from planet earth from israel from jerusalem as his capital so daniel 12 is a good uh uh place in the old testament to uh, get a lot of information of course you started your reading i hope in daniel chapter 2 where the vision was given the dream was given to the king and you worked your way from 2 all the way up to 12 so 12 is like the culmination but 12 has a lot of detail about 
um, some of the timing, some if you look for the themes and look at the language used, it'll line up. There are a lot of parallels between Daniel and other parts that we're going to see here in a moment. And we're not going to read through all Daniel 12 and stuff like that. In fact, I'm only showing you these just because I want you to have this in your mind when we're studying all of these details. Matthew 24, we already looked at that. It is a major portion of the Bible where you would and could be camped out if you were doing a major study the likes of what the one I'm doing. Matthew 24 is the Olivet Discourse version in Matthew, and we already looked at that in previous studies, so go back and watch previous videos. Along with Matthew, we have Mark's rendering, Mark 13, which is also the Olivet Discourse, but given from Mark's perspective, a lot shorter, leaves out some of the details that Matthew captures. We also have Luke 17, which pulls in language about the end-time scenario that we're going to be looking at, the last seven years of um, for wicked humanity to make a desperate attempt to either establish their champion player, which is the Antichrist, and throw off the rule of God and his Messiah, or to be literally brought to their knees in judgment by God just before God brings in his true champion, which of course is Yeshua, the Messiah, and ushers in and establishes his thousand-year kingdom here on earth. So Luke 17 is a parallel passage to Matthew and Mark. We also have Luke 21, which is this kind of the uh, part two of the Olivet Discourse from Luke's rendering, why uh, those two part chapters were split up when Bible translators uh, put the Bibles together. I don't know why it would have been easier just to put the Luke uh, 17 information and, and 21 information back together, but oh well. Another major passage that I would highly recommend you study is the entirety of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is Paul's teaching on the resurrection, and this includes language which, let me just double check. Um, yeah, this is the part in Paul's letters. You can see I a search for the word mystery in this chapter. This is where Paul lets us know that this idea of rapture is tied to resurrection, which was already given way back in Daniel. In fact, Daniel 12 talks about resurrection. Other passages in the Bible talk about resurrection. But the thing that makes it important for our studies is that from Paul's perspective, resurrection is something that even ancient Israel was told about, and yet as the church, which was a mystery to ancient Israel, to national Israel, the Gentile church was a mystery to Israel, so is the rapture part where, and I'm going to be very careful in the way I'm describing this, where believers in Yeshua are caught up bodily live to meet the resurrected saints in the air. So the resurrection is the resurrection of the dead but what about people who are alive when Yeshua returns, when the second coming takes place? What happens to them? Well, Paul gives the answer here in 1 Corinthians. So, read the entire chapter. It is the classic resurrection slash rapture passage, along with the one I'm going to show you now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Yeah, this is a biggie. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, read the whole passage, the whole chapter. It's, again, it's almost like his uh, follow-up letter, to the Corinthians passage, where it's a heavy resurrection passage and, and rapture passage, but now he also gives us, starts giving some more details concerning 
Antichrist rule the, the, and the tribulation that's going to happen, the deception that's going to come on planet Earth, etc. A lot of good and valuable information that Christians can learn. And Jews, if they would just read the New Testament, but unfortunately, a lot of them aren't. But in fact, almost none of them are, unless they're doing it in secret, not telling the rabbis. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, which goes right into 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So, both chapters, 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians, um, are going to start giving details uh, about this time period that's called resurrection slash uh, mystery rapture. And um, uh, what Christians are, have become to commonly call the um, Great Tribulation. So both of those chapters are very important. And then his second letter to the Thessalonians, this time Second Thessalonians chapter two, uh, gives a lot of detail that picks up where the first letters left off, um, filling in even more detail about the timing of all of the information that Paul must have gleaned from. Uh, studying the master's teachings remember paul wasn't there when yeshua was at least as far as i know wasn't there when yeshua was doing his ministry on the mount of olives and walking around with the disciples and things like that so we know that paul came later but the, the teachings of yeshua were certainly circulating in oral fashion if not beginning to be written down uh eventually so Paul was obviously aware of Yeshua's theology on end-time events, and thus, when Paul wrote his letters, he's writing with parallels that were taken from the Matthew Olivet Discourse uh, chapters that I just flashed before you earlier. Along with that, we obviously can't leave out the book of Revelation. It's a heavy player, and what's unique about the book of Revelation is, as far as I can tell and most other Christian uh, students of the Bible, Revelation came way after Paul. And so, Revelation is obviously details that are given to the Christian church, the body of Messiah, well after not only Paul's letters had circulated, long after the, I should say long, but years after the temple had already been destroyed, Jerusalem had been attacked uh, and surrounded by armies and things like that. Suddenly, Revelation comes in in the 90s where John's exiled on the island of Patmos, and John gives all these details that really are a, um, a fitting conclusion to God's um, view of drawing all of his plans to a close, bringing humanity, bringing history to a climax of judgment on wicked humanity and blessing and um, a reward for those who have found themselves to be righteous in God's sight because they placed their faith in Messiah, or they have at least been brought to a place where they have placed their faith in God and they're being introduced to this idea of Jesus when he comes back. So, um, either way you look at it, the book of Revelation is absolutely critical to an end-time uh, view. Of course, it doesn't help that it's so wow difficult to understand right uh i won't lie there's a lot of challenges in the book of revelation but when the time comes we'll do our best to work our way through it and then the last um part that i'm focusing is uh, i said revelation but uh for timing purpose and details i'm specifically recommending revelation chapter six which which begins what we call the opening of this large scroll in the hands of god and um, Yeshua is the one who's opening the seals on the outside of the scroll. So that starts in Revelation chapter 6. And then as far as the details of um, uh, rapture, if I want to use that word and in, its, in the sense that most Christians understand it, uh, Revelation 7 contains language that would uh, indicate that 
that rapture is probably something that's being discussed there. So those are the Bible passages. Now, let me jump through real quick. Just I'm going to flash these by and not spend a lot of time on them. Some graphics that I'll be using, they are all primarily the same type of graphic, which is a snapshot or picture of the seven-year time on planet Earth that is called either by the seven-year tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, the seventh week of Daniel, um, the seven-year tribulation, uh, the final, the, the, the Daniel's seven, or you know the last 490th seven, or whatever you want to call it. So, uh, the first one is a... Uh, picture that just shows the four primary views of rapture that I'm going to be discussing. You can see them on your screen here in the order that this slide shows pre-trib, mid-trib, pre-wrath, and post-trib. And the word trib there is short for tribulation. The bottom of the chart shows a seven-year slice known as the tribulation according to most Christians' perspective. And therefore, when we're asking when is the rapture itself, this time that's described as this catching away where Christians are snatched up, yanked up, uh, shot up into the air. If you want to think of it kind of like an alien abduction, if that's cool for you in your mind, then go ahead. I don't mind. Um, but um, getting sucked up from planet Earth up into the air to be with Jesus and then eventually going to heaven. Or if you think we're going to go up real quick and then do a U-turn and come right back down, we'll talk about that in time as well. But here's the four views that are primarily the ones that most Christians are going to encounter when they're having this type of discussion. Here's another chart that shows the exact same thing, but the only difference, and this is the, 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 the way they're laid out is the one I'm going to be working from mostly. We still have pre-trib at the top because it puts the rapture at the farthest left of your screen at the beginning of the seven years. That's the classic pre-trib, pre-tribulationism, pre-tribulational. Uh, so pre-trib is the shortened way of saying that pre-trib rapture. In other words, the rapture takes place pre or prior to any ra any tribulation. But moving down the list, we've got mid-trib, and then below that, we've got post-trib. Um, and then we've got the last one on the list, which is pre-wrath. I'm going to work my way down using this kind of uh, timing, where I'm going to talk first about pre-trib rapture, then I'm going to be talking about mid-trib rapture, then I'm going to talk about post-trib, where again, you see that little burst of yellow uh, kind of star-looking graphic uh, figure on your screen here. That's called the rapture. It takes place either at the beginning of the seven years, in the middle of the seven years, at the end of the seven years, or this one at the very bottom called pre-wrath, where it's not quite in the middle and it's not quite at the end. It's somewhere in the middle of the second half of the seven years. So it's after the midpoint, but prior to the final seven, prior to the end there. And then of course, noticeable uh, is the big yellow um, slice on the far right of your slide that says kingdom. What is that? That's the thousand year kingdom that Yeshua is ushering in, which I believe is literal. But when we're talking about pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, all of the views that we're gonna be looking at have this um, us understanding that there will be a kingdom that's being ushered in and that it is necessary for God to allow this seven-year time period to culminate with the ushering in of the kingdom. Thus, the kingdom really is the the uh, the kingdom of Yeshua really is the um, uh, reason why we're bringing history up to this final moment. Why 
um, judgment has to be poured out, why there must be a rapture, why there will be the man of lawlessness. It's because Jesus is going to reign and he will not reign from a Jerusalem in the condition that it's in right now, right? With all the mess that's going on over there in the Middle East. So there's got to be a lot of changes between now and the bringing in of the kingdom. Let's look at some more uh, graphics real quick. These are other graphics that are gonna show up in my own um, uh, short essay that I put together 25 years ago. Uh, here's the order that I'm gonna hit them. Here's the same uh, slide, but zoomed in a little bit. Pre-trip rapture. Following that, mid-trip rapture. Following that, post-trip rapture. Following that, pre-wrath rapture. So those are the four views that I'm primarily going to be working from. I've not forgotten about my brothers and sisters who are in uh, churches and congregations that hold to something that would be maybe labeled um, uh, uh, the second exodus view, or some people refer to it as the Goshen principle, or something to the effect that's more along the lines of theology that's... Uh, more aligned with Israel's perspective of what's going on. Up to this point, as you can probably tell, a lot of the rapture language, rapture theology, rapture discussions are almost what you might call Christian-centric. Uh, They're very um, appealing to Christians in Christian churches, Gentile Christians to be sure, because all of the language talks about, hey, we're going to escape all this mess. We're going to be yanked up into the air and be with Jesus. We don't have to be around for all this seven-year nonsense that's going to be uh, coming down the pike. Well, yeah, that's obviously appealing if you don't want to be around for that. I mean, hello, who wants to be around when the Antichrist forces everybody to take a mark to buy and sell? Uh, you know, or he's going to lop, lop off your head if you uh, uh, thumb your nose at him, disagree with him, right? Um, no one wants to be around for that, obviously. Well, for Christians, this is appealing. So when we're talking about rapture, 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 it seems like a very Christianized, uh, Gentilized it's concept. But what about Israel? Where does Israel fit into the picture? And so this is where a lot of Messianic congregations have tried to make sense of this whole end-time scenario and said, wait a minute. We, we believe we're part of Israel. We don't believe we're just part of this dispensational separate body known as the church where there's, we're completely separate from Israel. We believe we, we've been grafted into Israel. We're, we're, we're one with Israel. There's one giant olive tree. So what does Israel have to say about this rapture, right? How does that fit, fit with our theology of understanding that Israel is uh, the group that we're grafted into? Well, I don't have a slide for that yet, per se. Uh, let me look. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I don't. Uh, I don't have a slide for that, per se. So let me park it on that. Um, and I haven't found one yet. We'll put it that way. Uh, but this idea that there's this greater exodus where God rescued Israel and protected her supernaturally during the original first exodus that we know about from the Passover stories and the reading of the book of Exodus, you know, Israel didn't get snatched away from the tent plagues that were poured out. Instead, if you know the story, and if you don't know it, then I'm spoiling it for you, so spoiler alert. Israel was, was, was hunkered down. They were right where they were all along. Instead, what God did is he supernaturally protected them from the brunt of the plagues that were hitting Egypt. He made a bubble. He, he protected them in the midst of the judgment that was falling on Egypt. So instead of yanking them out of the way and then pouring out judgment like the rapture scenarios kind of talk about, he actually just um, protected them right where they're at. So we call that the Goshen principle, the land of Goshen, and that place where the plagues were being poured out, but God protected his people. 
And then it wasn't until after the plagues were all done, when Egypt was ruined, that they finally made their exodus out of ruined Egypt through the Red Sea and then finally into the Promised Land, etc., etc. So if there's going to be a greater one of these at the end of time for Israel, well then it doesn't it's not necessary to have this rapture. I'm using air quotes with my fingers for people who can't see. It's not necessary to have this uh rapture, so to say, that would um allow for people to be yanked up into the air and then drop back down on planet earth and, and whatever um so instead maybe god can simply do what he did before he can supernaturally protect his people in the midst of all of this uh judgment that's going to be being poured out uh supernaturally i mean god can do that obviously he's done it before so there's precedent for it so maybe that's the best way to understand the end time scenario we'll get to that in time so i'm going to be talking about that um when the time comes is there really going to be a greater exodus um is that the way we should better understand the new testament passages about jesus return is there just one coming where he's just going to show up um grab the christians group us together with the jews and then establish his kingdom pour out judgment it'll be really really quick and then um the kingdom comes we'll talk about that last uh slide real quick and then i'll jump into the study is the part where we're going to be discussing uh, we've done this in the past, but now we're going to turn headlong into it more focusedly, more and more intensely, is when we're dealing with this idea of a rapture concept where there is this escape from danger, this rescue from persecution that's going to be poured out on planet Earth, is there, um, are there two sort of phases or bookends i'm avoiding the phrase two second comings but one second coming that broke up broken up into two phases first phase being the rapture second phase being second coming how do we make sense of the language that we read and make it so that it's not contradicting one another so that there's no conflict so that god is not um purposely confusing us with these two things in other words we have these two kind of polar uh concepts of on one hand, on the left side, on the yellow slice of uh, that you can see on your screen now, where it says Raptor, we've got a lot of going up language, um, meeting in the air language, rescue language, uh, resurrection language, etc., etc. In other words, the people are going up, uh, the saints are going up. But then on the right side, with all the second coming language in the blue heading there, we've got a lot of opposite direction movement of uh, Jesus coming down, his feet touching planet Earth, a lot of horse riding going on. The saints are with them. Um, we have glorified bodies already. And then there's this big, massive, um, like video game level um, uh, battle, ar battle known as Armageddon. I'm, I don't mean to make light of the Battle of Armageddon by referencing video game level, but my point being is that the Bible certainly describes this judgment time period known as the Day of the Lord and the, the Wrath of God, etc., etc., which culminates in the Battle of Armageddon between the two main players, which is Jesus and Antichrist. And we are, of course, we already know who wins, right? It's, it's not even a contest, you know, but... Um, is that really a separate event from the rapture, or is it really just kind of one event? We quickly go up, we quickly come back down. We'll talk about that in time. All right, so you guys ready? Um, I just realized I didn't start the timer, but I've been looking at the clock, so I think I'm right at about 30 minutes into the study right now. So um, let's jump into the part of the study, which is actually going to go by fairly quickly, and it's this first section of topic nine, Jump over to the far uh, slide and you'll see what I'm talking about. Uh, 
Topic 10, I'm sorry, I keep saying nine. Topic 10, wrapped reviews and overview. So let's jump into what's called the overview. And um, we'll read this tonight, and then we'll begin to work down through this. And then as we work our way down through the overview, I'll turn right back around and start going a little bit slower after I do the overview. I'll go a little bit slower and pick on um, one of the main Rapture views as it is um, discussed in common Christian circles, and that is the pre-trip Rapture. And then what I'll do is I'll begin to create an awareness and understanding of the pre-trip view so that when I turn into the view that I'm going to describe as pre-wrath, you'll have an idea of the contrast and comparison that I'm going to be drawing. So let me jump through some more tabs just to show you the topics that um, I'm going to be hitting. After I do this uh, Rapture uh, Views overview that I put together 25 years ago, very short paper, then I'm going to uh, use some resources from uh, a trusted Christian web source that I've been uh, fond of using down through the years, gotquestions.org. He's going to just ask the question, when is the Rapture going to occur in relationship to the Tribulation? It's a classic pre-trib uh, answer, so I'm fine using this particular resource for that. After that, we're going to be looking at a blog put together by the website of uh, Pastor John uh, Piper. Um, very well respected, very um, well um, established Christian pastor, but nevertheless holds a view of rapture that's different than my own. I believe from memory from reading this article earlier, as I was prepping for all of this, I, I, the massive amounts of information that I have if I, that I've had to review up to this point uh, sometimes make my makes my head spin. But um, I believe John Piper holds to a post-trib perspective, which is similar to the view that a lot of messianic um, congregations hold to. Post-trib puts the rapture all the way at the far end of the seven years. It means we the church goes through the tribulation, all of it, and goes through what might be called the wrath of God as well. So, what is rapture? That's uh, an article we'll look at uh, in time. Next, we're going to be utilizing a resource that is a very popular resource. Uh, a book was written by a gentleman by the name of Aaron Eggman. He's a Christian. He's an eschatologist. I think I'm coining a word there again, eschatologist. I don't know that I've heard that one before, but just popped into my head. So he wrote a book on the end time scenarios. Here's called The Saints Go Up and the Wrath Comes Down. And it's a very easy to understand book. Um, this screenshot that you're seeing right now is right from his website at prewrathresource.wordpress.com. The book is available as an ebook on Amazon for $9.99, paperback $9.99, a color paperback for $41, and um, he has this website that has all these resources. I reached out to Brother Aaron um, uh, a while back, a month or so ago, and asked him if I could utilize his website and his resources um and he gave me permission to do so uh, so very generous uh, offer uh, thank you uh, brother aaron if you do get a chance to uh, get around to watching these youtube videos i will be promoting your book on my channel and uh during this time he holds to a pre-wrath view and so in time we'll get to his perspective um when it comes to looking at pre-wrath very um good resource right along uh, right right up there along with the the resource that i'm normally used used to using which is the sign book by robert ben campen or any of uh zion's hopes resources are are i'm i think i'm solidly uh grounded resources but brother uh eggman brother aaron's resources are very easy to understand so for that reason 
uh, we're going to utilize some of his web, um, his uh, blogs. One of them will be on the pre-tribulation rapture beliefs. Again, I'm going to establish the pre-trib perspective first because that's the one that's mostly, uh, mostly um, um, championed by Christian churches and pastors in the world today. It's the most popular view. It's the one that most theologians are going to be um, centered on. If you go to any seminary, uh, Bible seminary, Christian seminary, uh, pre-trib is probably the one you're going to be taught. But after that, we'll keep moving through uh, different resources. Uh, here's one written by a gentleman who wrote a book on the four views, co-authored it with other authors, but wrote a book on all four views and then shares what he believes is the right view after doing extensive study on all four of them. Um, and the, the blog that or the article I'm using is entitled, What is the Rapture and When Will It Happen? We'll look at that in time. There's another resource here from solascriptura.org where it talks about the rapture of the church and it doesn't label the view. It doesn't call it pre, mid, uh, pre-wrath or post or anything like that it just says rapture and what it does is it presents a view that in the end really looks like pre-wrath to me but it's simply saying let's just say what is the timing according to what the bible says so someone who likes to say i don't like labels i don't like pre-wrath pre pre post-trib mid-trib i don't like all those labels i just want to know what what's the bible say i don't want some man's view well this is going to be a, a an article here that we're going to read through that will kind of describe this um, event from the perspective of just what does the Bible say? If you, so if we were to say, what is the biblical view? This is the biblical view or, or one description of it from this particular resource that we're going to be looking at eventually. We're going to keep moving into uh, from, moving from the pre-trib view, which is going to be the main kind of focus of the four views on on the popular side we're going to move from that into where i'm going to be making a case for the pre-wrath view right topic 10 will move into topic 11 and so when we get to topic 11 we'll start here basically what is pre-wrath by alan kirshner dr kirshner has put together some resources at his website alan kirshner i'm sorry underscore alan kirshner.com and he's a pre-rather, right? So he holds to, to, to the perspective that I hold to, or vice versa. I hold the one he holds to. So he is going to start um, showing how all of the four views have strengths and weaknesses, and we're going to move through that in time. Then we're going to come back around to uh, Brother Aaron Eggman's resources, um, distinguish it between the Great Tribulation and the Day of the Lord. Because really, when we're talking about rapture, and we're talking about resurrection, we're also talking about this topic known as the Day of the Lord, which is an entirely Old Testament slash Tanakh topic. So you understand what I'm saying? When we're talking about how to bring Israel into the picture and not just focusing on the churches that are going to be snatched away and all this stuff, we've got to deal with Israel as a major player in the end times. And what what we need to do at that point in time is understand the Day of the Lord and how it incorporates Israel's deliverance salvation redemption um judgment all of that is um part of the study that we're dealing with this isn't just about the christian church we have to to bring israel into the picture it's so unfortunate that so many christian churches don't they're only focused on what's going to happen to me as a christian you know i don't really care about israel just what's going to happen to me am i going to be i'm going to be you know is this this big whisk uh zap up into the air you know uh that type of thing well 
that's what I'm telling you is not a very good way to read your Bible. Um, the, the Bible is Israel centric. It's Israel centric, period. And so this um, website, which I really appreciate uh, Brother Eggman giving me permission to, to u- utilize, he is absolutely Israel focused. And so he has a view on how do we understand as Christians what our part is going to be to play right alongside Israel. Yes, there are a lot of details that are given to the church that are in the New Testament parts of our Bible, but we've got to have this understanding that's foundationally rooted on our relationship with Israel. And so we're going to start turning into his resources with this particular topic. Uh, we'll also use this one from his uh, his website. Uh, the very same day Jesus comes and raptures Christians is the very same day God's wrath begins. Uh, very important um a topic to consider and then we'll use more of his resources the coming of jesus and the rapture so these are all from brother eggman's website and then lastly as we're working our way uh through the making the case for the pre-wrath we'll start to wind down when we start getting to topic number 11 about the i'm sorry i think it's topic 12 let me just double check yeah topic 12 with rapture final analysis will begin looking at some strengths and weaknesses of the pre-wrath rapture as viewed through the lens of the pre-tribbers we'll go back to gotquestions.org like i mentioned earlier and start um utilizing some of their resources right what are the strengths and weaknesses of the pre-wrath view of the rapture and then um oops i guess i didn't need to do that i already had it open there um so give me a second close one of those uh and then finally um we'll do this last um um kind of really a summary of all the four views with a view towards the pre-wrath but given from the perspective of really showing you the strengths and weaknesses of each view in a final form in a um in a summary fashion and letting the reader uh, come to their own conclusion but still written from a pre-wrath perspective it's from a resource known as uh in other words this is from um underscore pre-wrath rapture.com and uh you can see right away that when you start looking at this particular article it labeled the pre-rapture rapture, that it says that this rapture position is a synthesis of pre mid and post tribulationism together with a refinement of the timing issue that brings harmony to all of the rapture passages in question so even though it is a pro pre-wrath uh, uh, resource it's giving due credit to all the other perspectives to show where there are strengths in other words it's not necessary to throw out the other views completely rather glean from the strengths of the other views and then bring everything together and perhaps maybe say wow there's a way that we can kind of harmonize everything and that's what this last one will do and that'll occupy our kind of topic uh, 12 when the time comes okay you guys ready let's jump right into some of my um the the article that i wrote the little um essay that i put together uh, called eschatology a biblical study of end time events rapture views and overview all right so let's jump into this part the first part is a section called pre-tribulationism pre-tribulationalism these are my own brief notes this view was first known as quote unquote the secret rapture or a quote any moment rapture end quote it's a relatively new position which was first taught by the founder of the Catholic Apostolic Church, Edward Irving, in the late 1820s. So we're talking about pre-trib, the most popular perspective 
in Christian circles today, bar none. Think left behind series. Um, think big players, you know, um, authors, Tim LaHaye, uh, things like that. This is the view that you're going to hear a lot of people talk about. And let me interject real quick. <coughs> Excuse me. This is also the view that has absolutely turned off so many Christian readers to the idea of a rapture to the point that many people do not even believe in a rapture and have attacked the rapture wholesale. So when you meet ex-rapture believers, Christians who don't believe in the rapture anymore, I, I, I encounter a lot of them not in my, in my physical travels, because uh, I don't visit churches out here in Korea. But when I was in America, I encountered these types of people in churches. And I run into a lot of uh, blogs online, internet articles, YouTube videos, resources that anyone can access. They're ex-rapture believers. They don't believe in the rapture at all anymore. Or they've jumped ship from the pre-trib and just gone all the way, swung all the way over to either post-trib or pre-wrath or something like that. And what they end up doing is some of them end up tossing rapture out altogether they throw out the baby with the bathwater in my opinion i don't believe it's necessary to do that i do believe there is a rapture i do hold to rapture um as an event it's the resurrection and it's the beginning of the wrath of god being poured out so that's what i'm calling rapture but i believe it's necessary to at least realize that it's because of the glaring weaknesses and errors of the pre-trib position, as popular as it is, it still has a lot of glaring errors that cause a lot of people who can actually read their Bible and figure things out for themselves to go, well, if this perspective known as pre-trib is so weak, so so full, shot full of holes, maybe that means the rapture itself is a, is a concept that's just completely man-made it's recent it's a johnny come lately it's not something that paul would have ever taught it's not something that i should be believing in so i'm just going to throw rapture out altogether and so you'll find tons of videos where rapture is a hoax rapture is um uh, uh man-made rapture is not biblical you know google search that phrase rapture is not biblical do it in the youtube um channel side and see what you find so i said that because of this idea of secret rapture is not biblical and any moment rapture what we known as imminency where the rapture could happen at any moment that is also not biblical at least up to a point imminency is not biblical at some point it will be imminent but uh, for now it's not so let's keep reading this particular view which was um kind of came to light in the 1820s it was then picked up by plymouth brethren pastor and this is well-known information i'm not teaching anything like secret or scandalous this is all well known uh john nelson darby right he's a dispensationalist and he first preached this view uh in 1843 and it came to america in the late 1800s and was popularized by c.i schofield when he revised his very very popular bible notes in 1917 the schofield reference bible i remember owning a copy of that when i went to baptist school it was kind of required it's independent fundamental baptist uh choice of bible translations the schofield reference bible I'm not slamming the Bible. It is actually a very nice Bible. Um, very well put together, very kind of um, quality looking Bible. I don't know how much it costs, but he had these notes running right down the middle that were just very, very helpful. A lot of margin type notes, but study notes is one of the first Bibles that are very helpful Bibles that a lot of Baptists just went out and just gobbled up, um, you know, picked them up everywhere. 
But I seem to remember that because of this Bible, the pre-trib view just shot up the charts to number one in popularity among um, Christians, especially um, Protestant Christianity, and thus uh, it's kind of cemented its place in history now. It's it's the number one kind of undisputed, as it were, champion of rapture views is the pre-trib view. Until, as we're going to find out here in my little intro, the pre-wrath view became more popular and introduced. I say more popular, meaning more well-known, not more popular than pre-trib. But pre-trib is still the most popular, but pre-wrath became people become are becoming more aware of pre-wrath. And it's not that pre-wrath is brought you a brand new view, as I'm getting ahead of myself. It's actually that pre-wrath is a label that's been applied to a view that actually goes all the way back to first century. So let's keep reading. So pre-tribulationists, I say, teach. What do they teach? Here's the basics that they teach, some of the basics. This isn't, it's, this, this isn't an exhaustive um, look. But they teach that the return of Messiah has been imminent since the days of the early church and that the church will be raptured sometime before the seventh week begins. This is very important for their perspective. This is just an overview, so don't um, worry if you're getting lost. Um, this is, again, uh, the perspective that most Christians hold to. Most Protestant Christians, Protestant evangelical Christians are pre-tribbers um, and they are going to uh, use X amount of passages to show why they believe the view that they view. We're going to, again, we're going to present what I believe is a fair uh, representation of their perspective before we turn around and dismantle it, <laughs> right? Tear it down. And I go on to say, although they have no scripture that in so many words teaches it, these are my own words, they, pre-tribbers, teach that there are no signs and the rapture could take place at any moment. So it's signless, and it's imminent. It could happen before I finish my sentence. Yeah, sorry. Couldn't finish my sentence because I got raptured. Okay, I'm just being funny. But that's kind of their perspective. Um, the 70th week of Daniel, from their perspective, is therefore considered, I say, to be what's called a seven-year period of God's judgmental tribulation, quote-unquote. Hence, the term pre-tribulationism, right? Pre-tribulation. pre we're going to be raptured prior to the seven years being poured out on planet Earth, which the tribulation is to be equated with the the wrath of God, the punishment of God that's being poured out. So I, I conclude this little slice by saying this position generally views the 70th week as the day of the Lord's wrath from which the church is excluded. So wrath of God, tribulation, the same thing. Let's look at that chart that we looked at earlier. Here's the pre-trib chart, um, seven-year slice of history. The rapture is at the far left of the chart. The main part of the chart is occupied by God's wrath, which is broken up into two slice, two segments of three and a half and three and a half years. First half of the three and a half would be the Antichrist signs. I'm sorry, the, uh, the the tribulation part, and then the second half is what's called the Great Tribulation. There's a midpoint in the middle, as you can see, the abomination of desolation, and then the far right is the second coming with the black arrow pointing down. So, um, this is the classic pre-trib uh, chart that we're going to be referencing throughout this particular study. Let's keep going. Next is the mid-tribulationism perspective. Mid-trib, as the name implies. 
uh, is where we put the tribulation, I'm sorry, where we put the rapture in the middle of the tribulation, smack dab in the middle. So this view, I say, emerged in 1941 with the publication of the book, The End, Rethinking the Revelation, and the book was put together by Norman B. Harrison, obviously a Christian. Um, this perspective believes that the rapture in the church will occur at the midpoint of the seventh week of Daniel. They see the second half of the seventh week as the wrath of God, and as a result, listen to this, the church will not be here when God pours out his wrath on earth. So this position starts to move away from pre-trib and say, no, the church needs to be here during the tribulation, but... We are promised exemption from the wrath of God. So this is a view that started to challenge some of the inaccuracies of the pre-trib view in that they were saying that, number one, the church needs to go through some bad stuff, and number two, the church needs to be exempt from the wrath of God. So here's the classic um, chart that shows the seven-year tribulation or the seven-year time frame, Daniel's 70th week, right, the last seven years. We've got the Antichrist signing the covenant at the, at the beginning, just like all the other charts will. We've got it broken up into three and a half and three and a half, like all the charts will. We've got the midpoint, like all the charts that I'm going to show you will. But then notice the, the two arrows, the white and the black one, kissing each other right at the midpoint. That's the mid-trib rapture, according to this perspective. God's wrath is poured out after the saints are raptured, and then God's wrath runs the final three and a half years, and then the second coming is at the far right. The, the, the black arrow pointing down. So that's the mid-trib rapture. Let's keep reading. Post-tribulationism. This view um, puts the uh, rapture at the farthest end of the seven years. I'll just tell you right up front in case you're not following along with the terms pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, etc. But post-trib, post meaning after the tribulation. So this perspective, I went on to say that there are a number of views in the post-trib camp, they're all kind of a um, little bit of kind of hybrids of the post-trib camp, or they're um, variations on the same perspective of post-trib. They don't all have the exact same timing, but they're they're all kind of clustered into this category that I've labeled post-trib. Some post-tribbers see the church in tribulation since its beginnings. In other words, they don't see the seven-year period as futuristic. They just kind of have everything kind of as a historicist view, I think, where um, we've been in the tribulation for the last 2,000 years, basically. And so the things that Yeshua talked about in Matthew 25 that we would call the birth pangs or the um, the uh, initial uh, things that are happening in the world, the wars and rooms of wars, the the, the famines, the plagues, the the uh, all kinds of, um, of earthquakes and things like that. That's been going on ever since uh, the church age began 2,000 years ago at Pentecost. That's kind of what I mean by um, a, a historicist perspective. Um, so they don't look at the last seven years really as something that's happening in the future, but they do look at the second coming of Christ as the culmination of the end of the age that must take place to usher in that millennial kingdom that we keep talking about that's on many of these charts, the far right side of most of the charts. Let's keep reading. The most prevalent view today of the post-tribulations is that the seven-year period is yet in the future, right? It is a real seven-year period. And so in other words, it's not just strung out along lines of 2,000 years. Rather, there really is a seven-year, a seventh week of Daniel in the most prevalent pre-post-trib perspective. And although the church will experience this time of tribulation, here's the kind of 
um, Goshen principle or greater exodus that I've been talking about that's very popular with Messianics uh, these days. Although the church will experience this time of tribulation, I go on to say that it will be sheltered by God's protection before the second coming. So similar to what happened in the first exodus with the children of Israel. God didn't rapture them out of Egypt until all the plagues had been finished running their course. Israel had to be there for all of the the, the plagues. In other words, all the bad stuff had to come down also. It's just that God supernaturally sheltered them while in place. And that's uh, one of the more prevalent views of the post-tribulationist perspective is that we're not going to be raptured away. Instead, God's going to protect us throughout the whole thing. And therefore, when it's time to bring in the kingdom, we might make a quick jump up and then but straight back down a little quick U-turn um, because they still can't deny the fact that there's going to be some resurrection. I mean, that's biblical. You can't you can't rip that out of your eschatology in time perspective, or you're going to run into massive problems, not just from the New Testament, but from the Old Testament, right? Resurrection is an established event that must be recognized by both um, students of the Tanakh as well as students of the Apostolic Scriptures. You've got to recognize resurrection. Even if you don't like that other ugly R word known as rapture, you got to recognize uh, the really cool R word known as resurrection. So, Sheltered in place, protected by God before the second coming, George Ladd in his book, The Blessed Hope, and Robert Gundry in his book, The Church and the Tribulation, they both teach that the church will experience the seven-year period, which will conclude with the rapture of the church. So again, here's what the chart looks like, post-trib chart. Here you got the seven-year slice, and it's, this time it's all labeled God's wrath. So tribulation is the first half, the first three and a half years, but great tribulation is the second half, but all of it, the entire seven years is God's wrath being poured out. And um, Christians, if you notice, go through the entire seven years of tribulation slash wrath. And then the two arrows, black and white, kiss one another at the far right of the screen, where second coming meets with post-trib rapture. So it's a quick up into the air, get your white robes, come back down, and let's do business. Right? That's kind of what what takes place. I'm I'm being kind of humorous with it, but you guys are following along. All right, let's keep going. We I think I will finish uh, this part of my study night because we're right at about uh, the hour mark. Um, so this, oops. This last view is the view that I'm going to champion, the one that I'm going to hold to, that I think has the most biblical traction when you harmonize all of the views and all of the um, major uh, events that are in the end-time scenarios, and you take it from a literal face-value hermeneutic that allows for a sequence of events to be portrayed and foretold in the Bible, uh, understood from their normative sense of the way sequence words and chronology is given in biblical prophecy we end up with the view known as the pre-wrath view and the, the the spelling of the word of the name of the position sometimes you'll see it as a capital p lowercase r e dash lowercase w r a t h like i like you see on your screen now sometimes it shows up as capital p and then all the letters are put together without a dash just pre and then the word uh, p and then capital the capital P and then the rest of the letters lower with no dash. Sometimes the cat, the W is capitalized. Sometimes it's two words, pre and then space, capital W. But um, I'm not consistent in my own. Um, per, uh, I tried to be consistent, but since I started this study 25 years ago and I'm picking it up, the, up now, I think I might have changed along the way. So if you see the spelling change a few times, I apologize. And different authors are going to uh, represent it different ways. So the pre-wrath position, I go on to say, teaches 
that the true church will be raptured when the great tribulation by Antichrist, inspired by Satan himself, is cut short by God's day of the Lord wrath, which will occur when? Between the sixth and seventh seals of Revelation, sometime during when? The second half of the 70th week. So again, we're not date setting. We still honor the idea that Jesus said in Matthew, no man knows the day or the hour. We don't know exactly when the rapture is going to happen, but we have this idea of when the season of the rapture should happen based on Yeshua's um, portrayal of the signs and of the birth pangs and of the sequence of events that he says, then this will happen, then this will happen, and then we see this happen, then after this happens, and that perfectly parallels <coughs> excuse me, parallels not only Paul's letters in the Corinthians and the Thessalonians that we looked at earlier, but it finally culminates in John's red, uh, letter to uh, John's uh, book called The Revelation that was given to him by Yeshua when he was on exile on Patmos. And they there we finally given sequential um sets of seven events like the seven seals followed by the seven trumpets followed by the seven bowls or some people think they all they all happen concurrently simultaneously at the same time meaning the seven seals happen at the same time as the seven trumpets and as at the same time as the seven bowls but we'll get to that in time but either way the pre-wrath comes along and says if you put all of this together and give it a normative chronological sequential face value hermeneutic where we're dealing with real people groups such as the church or israel or antichrist or or um, persons um and you're dealing with real historical events that are played out in in real time albeit in supernatural brilliance right we're talking about a re return of the supernatural on planet earth i mean signs and wonders are going to be happening all around us and that you're not just dealing with symbolic language but just like the plagues of old i mean if you want to learn about the end of the book you got to study the beginning of the book and i firmly um espoused the idea that uh, the best way to understand the end times is to understand um, what took place in the, the original Exodus. Yes, so I I mean, I'm not throwing um, a greater Exodus out and under the bus, even though it's a view championed by uh, Monty Judah, a very um, somewhat controversial Messianic teacher. But um, I do agree that pre-wrath is able to articulate its, its perspective in a very cohesive way, a very... Um, persuasive manner so that's why i'm going to present it uh, but also because i believe it has the most um biblical um uh, what's the word i'm looking for biblical uh, uh accuracy so um i go on to say that and we're and we're wrapping up here the persecution associated with the great tribulation of antichrist is viewed not as tribulation but as the wrath of satan whereas by comparison the events that follow beginning with the seventh seal are considered what we would call the wrath of god and this is going to be a foundational aspect which not only separates this view from many of the other views but also is one of the um strongest points to understanding this perspective it, it is a, a pillar in this particular perspective that the tribulation is not the wrath of god there there there's a a distinguishing aspect between them so when we look at the chart that we saw earlier we've got this pre-wrath rapture and we've got the seven-year slice of history known as daniel 70th week and I'm not going to call it the seven-year tribulation, because I think that's a, a non-biblical 
uh, viewpoint, a non-biblical um, uh, terminology, a label. Instead, we're going to call it Daniel's 70th week, but within the seven years, we can break it down between the first three and a half, like we've done with all the other charts, and we're going to label it the beginning of sorrows as the first three and a half. Remember, Antichrist signs the covenant at the beginning of every one of these seven-year charts. So that's that's something that's unmovable, and that's something that's not disputed. But we, we also have the abomination of desolation taking place at the midpoint, which is also not in dispute by most, if not all, uh, end-time uh, teachers and students that are uh, in this particular um, discussion. But then right after the midpoint, we have the beginning of what's called the Great Tribulation, which should run the, the entire three and a half years, but instead, it's going to be cut short by the, the event that is called the pre-wrath rapture, where we've got the white arrow pointing up, and then the God's wrath, which is the part of the black arrow pointing down, uh, the day of the Lord, which occupies the final um, uh, quarter, as it were, of this seven-year slice of three and a half years. God's wrath is just that last section. How long God's wrath is, I'm not saying. This is just a general general chart here that you're looking at. We're not saying, we pre-wrathers are not saying that the last three and a half years is definitely cut into whatever three and a half years divided by half is, right? And that's not what we're saying. It's just a generalization. We don't really know when the rapture is going to take place. We don't know when God's wrath is going to be poured out. We're simply saying that the events are going to happen, they're going to be triggered simultaneously and the, the, that event, the rapture slash pouring out of God's wrath, is going to cut short the Great Tribulation and uh, initiate the Day of the Lord, which is a well-known event spoken about way back in the Old Testament. The Day of the Lord is, is, uh, occupies a lot of Bible time, so get familiar with it. And then lastly, at the far right of this chart, just like all of the other charts I've shown you, the second coming is when Jesus comes back, not for his saints, but with his saints, right? It's the, it's the horse riding part that we read about in the book of Revelation. Jesus comes back on a white horse. We're coming with him. But then we still have to make sense of where does Israel fit into this picture? Did Israel get raptured? Did Israel get left behind, like Tim LaHaye says in his series? Did Israel go through the Great Tribulation? Did Israel go through the Day of the Lord? What is Israel's role? This is going to be a primary um, focus of this study as well. So I hope you don't tune me out and just think, well, this is just for the church. No, we've got to figure out why we are even here as Christians to minister to Israel, to pray for them, to support them, and what is going to happen to those Jews who don't believe in Jesus but are here on planet Earth when all of this stuff is going down. We're going to have to deal with that. So I think Brother Aaron Eggman's study uh, is going to be very helpful in that regard. So um, that's going to do it for the charts uh, for pre-wrath. Let me close by reading these last two um, uh, paragraphs, and then we'll draw our study to a close. Um, there's another term in, that I say that it's sometimes expressed known as historical premillennialism, which, uh, as far as I can tell, refers back to the teaching of the early church fathers before 325 AD. So notice, we've got pre-trib, which is a fairly recent term that came about when John Darby introduced his theology um, along with dispensationalism. Then we had the pre, the, the mid-trib that came along a little later after that, and then the post-trib that perhaps maybe is also a little later than that. And then we've got this pre-wrath, which the term is also new, but what about the concept of the church going through tribulation, facing the Antichrist and the man of lawlessness, and then being rescued by God at the end during either a rapture or a second coming or simultaneous event? 
how old is that view? Well, as far as I can tell, it's very old. It goes back to the view known as, or the label, historical premillennialism, uh, going all the way back to 325 AD. And what I found is that the early church fathers believed that the church would face the persecution of Antichrist and that Christ would then reign for 1,000 years upon the earth. So it's a very simplified um, overview of the end time events in Daniel's 70th week, but Notice, by contrast to the pre-trib view, which says that the church is going to be snatched out of the way and out of harm's way before any tribulation hit, ha, hits, and therefore the church is not going to even face the Antichrist, the historical pre-mill pre version, or label, which is in harmony with pre-trib, by the way, um, actually says, no, the church must face persecution from Antichrist, but that Christ is going to establish his kingdom, which means Antichrist must be defeated. And whether we're calling that defeat the rapture or the um, second coming, we haven't, we don't have any distinguishing label yet. But I go on to say that with the exception of two church fathers, namely Origen and Clement of Alexandria, they were allegorists. Um, all of the church fathers basically taught the view, as far as I can tell, the view of historical pre-mill, which, as I go on to say, pre-wrath is plainly and simply an expansion of this view, which was biblical then and has been proven to be biblical still. So, are you understanding where I'm going with this? This is why, again, I believe that it's so unfortunate that we've got so much confusion, people abandoning rapture altogether. No, don't abandon rapture, but don't be confused as to what the Bible is teaching concerning this end time. We should embrace what's known as resurrection and the blessed hope. We should embrace what's taught as the second coming of Christ. Absolutely. But we should also understand that God promises not just to rescue us from harm's way, either in the form of taking us out of the way first or in the form of protecting us in the midst of danger. Either one is a rescue a preventing us from from having to go through what would be what we're going to label the wrath of god but either way not only are we not destined to face the wrath of god but we're also um need to understand that as christians we have an important role to play when it comes to bringing israel to a place where she can cry out blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord remember yeshua said you won't see me again until you cry this cry right uh, matthew chapter 23 just before he gave the olive discourse he, he tells israel you know hey i'm leaving i'm i'm gonna leave your house to you desolate because you guys have rejected me and you're not going to see me again until you have this messianic cry. And so the church has an important role to play. We're not just going to be up and out of here and then leave it poor Israel behind to face all the bad stuff that's going to happen. That's a wrong-headed notion, people. Um, we're grafted into Israel. And this is very important for us to understand the role that we're going to play in, help, in helping to bring Israel to a knowledge and acceptance of her Messiah in the end times. So we've got to be around long enough to be a proper witness. We've got to be around long enough to um, bring Israel to a jealousy. And so um, we also have to realize that God is orchestrating all of these events not to destroy Israel, but to prepare her for meeting our Messiah and ushering in that glorious kingdom that he promised to give Israel a long time ago. Right? There are promises that are still unfulfilled, and God keeps his word. So that's the view that we're going to be working our way towards, and that's why pre-wrath is a very important perspective, because it actually has the gall and the chutzpah to take a stand 
against the errors of dispensationalism. John Darby's uh, dispensationalism, which goes part and parcel with the pre-trib view, is the part that is so kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, kind of repulsive to many messianics. They're like, what? God has given up on Israel? rejected the, his people and he's dealing with this new dispensation known as the christian church and there's no place for Israel anymore and all of that right dispensationalism has a has a um a checkered history especially among many messianics so it's 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 kind of um no no wonder that when the pre-trib became popular the pre-trib view dispensationalism also rose in prominence and so when we're talking about pre-wrath there's a lot about dispensationalism that we have to also challenge and so that's what we're going to be doing in this particular uh, perspective and then lastly this last paragraph that i say in this intro version this this overview and then we'll close the study down tonight um is as we're going to quickly find out these are my own thoughts. The pre-wrath rapture view is not for the faint of heart who, quote-unquote, feel that the church shouldn't go through any tribulation. Why? Because the Bible actually teaches in numerous references quite the opposite. So this idea of, I don't have to really be ready to go through anything. I'm just going to wait for Jesus to come, take me away, rescue me. That whole mindset has multiple problems in and of itself. And the solution, listen please carefully, the solution is not to throw out rapture. The solution is not to abandon um, the idea that God is going to rescue us. No, the idea is to simply turn back into the Bible and embrace the truth of the idea that God is going to A, rescue slash protect us during this time and if it comes down to having to yank us out of harm's way before antichrist would just wipe us all out well then god can and will do that eventually god did take israel out of egypt before egypt was completely ruined um i mean the pharaoh got to the point where he was just crazy and no matter the plagues even after Israel, even after he let Israel go, he pursued them. And so God had to supernaturally protect Israel from the Pharaoh at some point in time by, you know, as we know, we've read the story, if we've watched the, the, uh, the animations, right? Prince of Egypt or um, uh, one of those other uh, shows, right? Of God, Exodus of Gods and Men or something like that. God had to bring them through the Red Sea to finally sever the tie between the wicked kingdom uh that pharaoh represented which is satan's kingdom there in this representation and god's kingdom and god's people known as israel well eventually that's what god's gonna have to do because satan is gonna go buck wild after israel after the church and seek to annihilate us right it's gonna be a a, a genocide again he's gonna seek to wipe out the people of israel and to wipe out the christians who are here on earth so if god didn't either a rapture us as christians and or b supernaturally protect israel during this time and i'm talking about unsaved israel now right there's still his covenant people if he didn't do that then there would be no more israel and there would be no more christian church because satan would have had his way and wiped us all out so god has to intervene so it's necessary for us to teach some form of god demonstrating not just his protective power where he can rescue us slash protect us but at the same time god has to demonstrate judgment and that's why wrath has to fall wrath has to fall not just in an unrepentant world 
but it has to fall on a on, a, on an evil um, antichrist and false prophet and the devil himself. They all have to be judged. So I say in closing, indeed, many believers, and this is sad but true, they are truly hoping to be raptured out prior to anything bad happening. And don't get me wrong, I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, what if pre-wrath is wrong? What if pre-trib is right? What if Jesus does come and, and we don't see anything bad? Well, hallelujah, that would be great. Yeah, you know, let's let's look forward to Jesus rescuing us from any bad things happening, right? I don't want to see the Antichrist either. I don't want to be faced with having to take the mark. I don't want to be faced with having to have my head chopped off. I don't want that. But what if the pre-tribbers are wrong? Are you prepared to go through that? Is your faith uh, strong enough to stand the tribulation, right? Let's talk about that. So I go on to say that I'm afraid for many Christians that this type of rapture would mean a feet-first rapture. Why? Because they're still holding on to the world's affections. The church just isn't ready, right? The church just isn't ready in terms of so much compromise, so much wishy-washy um, uh Foot, one foot in the world and one foot in the church. I mean, it just doesn't work that way. God has to purge us and purify us and um, prepare us to meet our husband who's going to come one day soon. And so I also go on to say that for the rest of us, this still poses a problem to our hearts in that we can't be smug. We must, we must continually re-examine our priorities in the light of all truth, doing what? Testing ourselves. Read 2 Corinthians 13.5 and testing our theologies, read Acts 17, 11. So the point I'm trying to close in is saying, I'm not saying that we pre-rathers pre need to be smug, proud, haughty, high-minded, head, you know, headstrong and say, we've got all the answers. We figured it out those poor, stupid, silly pre-tribbers. They don't have a clue. Um, they're, they're, they're going to be, they're in for a rude awakening. No, that's the wrong position to take also. All of us need to examine our hearts, examine our priorities. We need to test ourselves and we need to test our theologies because we all have um, parts where we don't understand. So we need one another. So I'm, I'm saying that I'm doing a study like this so that we can come together and talk the issues out and come to a shared understanding because we're in this together. And I don't just mean we Christians are in this together. I mean we Christians and Jews are in this together because guess what? And I really will close with this. When the Antichrist turns at the midpoint of the week, that's, that's when I figure he's going to be revealed to the world for who he truly is. The mask comes off and he turns from being this man of peace to this man of absolute sheer terror. When that happens, he's going to go after Jews and Christians. He will go after anyone who opposes him. And at some point he's, in time, he's going to turn on all religions as far as I can tell. First, he's going to try and synthesize it, and when that doesn't work, he's just going to try and uh, turn on it altogether. But he will he will have, as far as I can tell, an intense hatred, right? Read Revelation chapter 12. This intense hatred for not just Israel, but for Christians. So he's coming after both of us. Guess what? We need each other. We Christians and Jews. We need to stand together and begin to put a lot of our differences aside and learn to understand how that God has brought us together in this great olive tree known as Israel where not just national Israel has to deal with the Christian church, but the remnant of Israel needs to see that they've got their brothers on both sides of the aisle. They've got national Israel on one side, who is unsaved Israel, and they've got the Christian uh, Gentile churches on the other side who don't quite understand how Israel fits in the picture. So we've got to have this proper perspective so that we can all um, uh, help each other out during these very difficult times that are going to befall us. Omain, Omain, that'll do it for Eschatology, a biblical study of end time events.
These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a torture at Congregation K. Latunavada Harvest in uh, Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at tetzetorah.com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and um, took a look around there as well. YouTube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetze Torah Ministries. If you do hit my website, uh, my YouTube channel there, be sure to uh, take notice that I update the uh, site essentially daily, uploading videos daily. Make sure then to subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like. Um, leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now, um, uh, during the live study and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live because we engage in a live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there. And uh, prayerfully consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format. You can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions. And I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts. Uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give. I'm so uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of, of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right, let's turn to a Trinitarian response to biblical Unitarianism. My name is Ari Ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's take the next 30 minutes and I believe we can finish this particular topic tonight, this particular verse, which on your screen simply shows up as Proverbs 823 on biblicalunitarian.com's website. I, wisdom, was appointed from eternity from the beginning. And what we've been talking about as we look at this passage is that the proverb, the, the, the proverb in chapter 8 talks about this attribute of God or this quality of God or this uh, emanation from God, if you want to use a kind of a Hebraic mindset, that God is all-wise, God is all-knowing, and God uses one of his attributes in order to create the universe to include planet earth and so in proverbs 8 22 god says the lord possessed or wisdom says of god that god possessed me at the beginning of his way and the beginning is a reference to the beginning of not god's way but the beginning of god's creation and we know this because of the parallel clause before his works of old the works that are spoken of here are the creation account we go on to verse 23 to say wisdom speaking from everlasting i was established from the beginning the beginning what from the beginning of the universe being created from the earliest times of the earth wisdom reminds us 
in verse 24. I'm just going to read to verse 25. Wisdom says, when there were no depths, again, the earth is in view. I was brought forth when there were no springs abounding with water. This is poetry. Wisdom is saying, when did God utilize my services as an agent of creation? It was right at the very beginning. Is wisdom saying that God created me at the beginning? I don't believe wisdom is saying that. Wisdom is speak, simply speaking poetically, uh, anthropomorphically, as if wisdom is this separate uh a person from God that can speak uh, using uh, this um, uh, tool known as personification. And the wisdom, finally, the verses that we really kind of focus on, wisdom says, before the mountains were settled, before the hills, I was brought forth. And the reason we're having this uh, debate, as it were, between biblical Unitarianism, which is a non-Trinitarian uh, Christian denomination that believes that God is the only God there is, and there is no person of the Son in deity form and no person of the holy spirit in third person form rather they believe that god is the only sole deity the father is god and god is the father he's numerically identical with himself and that's it there aren't any other gods or other deities or other persons in heaven so there's one god and so jesus is a human being that was created by god just like god created me god created you god created jesus brought him into the world but uh um ordained him to play the role where he became the Messiah of the world, the Savior of the world that all men must place their faith in. And then when God resurrected him and exalted him and, and um, raised him up to be seated at the right hand, well, then God gave the right for Jesus to be worshipped by human beings, not as a God, but as Messiah, as God's chosen representative of all human beings. So Jesus is the preeminent human being, but he's just that. He's a human. But he's not a creation of God in the sense that he's a demigod or a lesser God, like the Jehovah's Witnesses say, uh, some kind of um, uh, mini-God, a uh, lowercase g-o-d. So, Biblical Unitarian says Jesus is human. The Holy Spirit, in their perspective, is just another name for God, or it's a power from God, the anointing from God, um, a description of God who is pure, holy, and pure spirit. Thus, Holy Spirit is just another name for God the Father. Um, there's no third person of the Holy Spirit. So, when we look at the book of Proverbs, Biblical Unitarian says that there's no second person of the Trinity going on here. Wisdom is not Jesus. Wisdom is just personification of one of God's attributes, which, you ready for this, was not created at the beginning. God has always been wise. God has always been immutable, right? He can't change, and therefore, he can neither incarnate himself and become a human being, nor can he create a separate uh, entity known as wisdom. He doesn't need to. He has always possessed this, and therefore, Proverbs is simply personification. That's it. Well, the Trinitarian perspective comes along and agrees partially with the Unitarian position that wisdom is personification right but what some trinitarians do is take it one step further and say wisdom is jesus personified in other words um jesus is wisdom personified i'm sorry uh jesus becomes the wisdom of god in the new testament in the sense that jesus is, is the incarnation he's the god man he's the man that be uh, he's the god that became a man and yet he's one with god the father so just to make sure that you don't understand the trinitarian position we believe in one god yet three persons one what three who's like uh, dr white is fond of saying dr james white 
God is one person. I'm sorry, God is one being, but yet Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are three persons, and they are um, um, unique, and yet they are equal. They're all equally one God, and they don't uh, uh, diminish one another in the sense that one created the other. But there is a hierarchy in the persons and in the what we would sometimes term the economies of God, the economic trinity versus the ontological trinity is what I'm describing. So, the Father sends the Son, the Father begets the Son in this eternal relationship between Father and Son. It is what's known as eternally begotten. So, the Son was not, was not created like the Jehovah's Witnesses say. Instead, the Son was always the Son from eternity past. God the Father has always been an eternal Father, and thus the Son is an eternal Son. There's never been a time when the Son was not in existence there was a time when the man named jesus was not in existence so don't get confused the human part the human um uh, uh aspect of jesus the the nature of jesus which is human was in fact brought into the world in the first century so we don't disagree with that the holy spirit by the way for trinitarians is a third person of god who is fully god one with god he is god but yet he is a third person who can be dispatched and sent by God into the hearts of men, into the world to do God's bidding. He is not a lesser God. He is fully God. He is 100% God. He's fully God, he, yet he's also fully spirit. And he dwells in the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Messiah. So the Holy Spirit is a third person of the Trinity. And so the Holy Spirit is sent not just by God the Father, but also by Yeshua. So there's that economic aspect of Trinity going on again. So when we look at Proverbs and we ask who is wisdom or what is wisdom, we've already looked at this aspect that wisdom is simply a personification of one of God's attributes that was utilized in agency fashion to create the world. But now, we also jump through looking at the Septuagint, where more of this language of the poetry, where the verbs of being established and created and set up and brought forth are um, reminiscent of language that shows up other places, not just in the Hebrew Bible, but in the Greek version, the Septuagint, where the writers begin to understand that God uses this language to help humans understand the complex nature of God, where he can poetically say that I pulled wisdom out of my tool belt to utilize it as an agent of creation, yet at the same time, I don't have to give you the impression that I am not all-wise. God is saying, I have always possessed wisdom. There's no reason to take the, let me use this slide, to take the um, illogical um, unbiblical approach that Jehovah's Witnesses do, the JWs on the screen here, where they get trapped by their own um, faulty logic into thinking that Jehovah lacked wisdom at some point and had to create wisdom, just like Jesus was not around in eternity past and God had to create him in order to create the universe. If that's what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, right? Remember, they believe that, that Jesus is wisdom. And therefore, because Jesus had to be created by God, then that if Jesus is wisdom, then their logic determines that, that wisdom was something that, that God had to create. But if that's true, then that means that God isn't all wise. And Jehovah's Witnesses aren't ready to make that commitment that God is not all wise. So they backpedal and say, no, 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 we're not saying that God isn't all wise. 
But then if you go in the other direction and say, well, then you're saying that God possessed wisdom from eternity, and the JW says yes. And then you follow through with their logic and say, well, then if you believe that Jesus is wisdom, and they say, yes, we do, then they, then you, would, you, the Trinitarian, would say to them, well, then that means you believe that Jesus is eternal, right? Then they have to stop and go, no, 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 no. That's not what we believe either, right? So I'm creating this kind of straw man, kind of um, silly version of the JW's uh, perspective. But honestly, their theology is just has so many holes in it that it's hard not to see their perspective as anything other than um, just silly in, in many in many cases. It's actually quite sad. Um, really, we need to pray for them that their eyes would be open to the truth. Because while they do embrace Jesus as the Messiah, the theology that um, Jesus is a creature that God whipped up so that he could create the rest of the universe is actually just insulting. So we also jump to this idea that um, the both the Trinitarian and the uh, Jehovah's Witness perspective take John 1.1 to be referring to Jesus as this word. The Jehovah's Witnesses simply believe that it's the word that was created by God as a lesser God, whereas the Trinitarians believe that this word is the eternal Son of God in his pre-incarnate um, state where he's the eternal word that dwelled with God and uh, both is God and what was with God, right? In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. Well, John, we believe as Trinitarian, was borrowing from the, the theology that was already established as with wisdom, where there's this a little bit of personification going on between the word and uh, the incarnation. But at the same time, the Trinitarians take it one step further by saying, isn't Jesus wisdom? So, having said all that, we're, I, I read through my own little um, essay, The Wisdom of Proverbs and the Logos of John, A Trinitarian Understanding, which isn't available on any website, so you had to follow along with my study. But now I'm ready to finally do the last part of this study, and I, I believe I will draw it to a close tonight with this aspect. There's a blog uh, put together by a website known as... Um, www.answeringislam, answering-islam.org. So it's a, um, a, a, what we call an apologetic resource that reaches out to Muslims to bring the gospel to them. And one of their articles is on Proverbs 15.32, which is not the exact same verse that we are studying directly, but the author which we're going to find is Sam Shamoon. He is a he's a former Muslim turned Christian apologist, and he's got a very good angle uh, when it deals when it comes to dealing with uh, the non-Trinitarian beliefs that Muslims hold to. Of course, again, we're not talking about biblical Unitarians' perspective, but to the degree that he's going to present a Christian Trinitarian perspective on this topic of who is wisdom, I thought this particular um, article would be helpful for us. And what we're going to find, and I'm, I'm going to spoil it for you, like I always do, because I know some people can't um, watch, it, watch the entire 30-minute video. I'll go ahead and spoil it for you, okay? I'm fine with that. Sam Shamoon, who's a Christian apologist, and he is a Trinitarian, he's going to argue for the case that wisdom isn't Jesus, but wisdom is simply personification. Similar to what the biblical Unitarian position is, in that wisdom is personification, except remember the, the, the big difference is that biblical Unitarian does not say that wisdom is Jesus. They're just going to say that uh, wisdom is one of God's attributes because there was no Jesus around for it to be uh, personification. Uh, one of these days, we'll look at their perspective on John 1.1. In time, we're going to get to that. In fact, just to kind of show you where we are going uh, next week, 
As you can see on your screen, this is biblicalunitarian.com, a website about God and His Son Jesus. Once we're finished with Proverbs 8.23 right here, we're going to turn right into Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign, and we'll talk about that passage from the Unitarian perspective, and then we'll provide the Trinitarian perspective after that. So we'll deal with Isaiah. It's got a few passages out of Isaiah that we're going to deal with. We'll move from there into Jeremiah, a few verses there, passages that Biblical Unitarian believes are more or less slam-dunk passages on disproving the Trinitarian perspective from the Bible. Remember, they are a non-Trinitarian Christian denomination. They do believe in Jesus. As far as I can tell, they're Christians to the degree that they embrace Jesus as the um, Savior and their only true Messiah, so I'm not judging them on that. But... I believe they're holding an inadequate and incomplete perspective on who God is, namely that God is Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But what I'm showing you is as we're moving through their own resources, which are available on their website at biblicalunitarian.com, we'll eventually finish out the Old Testament verses and begin to move into the New Testament. As you can see, I'm scrolling. There's some verses in Matthew in mark and most of these passages are going to be in the old in the new testament by the way there's some in luke and then what look at that lo and behold there's john 1 1 so eventually we'll get to their view of john 1 1 and find out what they think about john and then that will remind us of what we already learned about their perspective on uh wisdom in the book of proverbs so having said that let's read this part from um this article and this will close out my study and if it goes a little bit over it will but for the most part i think i'm just going to read through and stop not stop and elaborate too much so there's this question that was put forth to um sam shamoon a muslim apologist uh, apolog- a Christian apologist to Muslims. He himself is a former Muslim. There's a question that came in, and usually the questions that come into their website are from the Muslim side of the house, but there are a lot of parallels between the Muslim rejection of Trinity and the non-Trinitarian Christian perspectives that challenge Trinity also. It's like, you know, you got the Biblical Unitarians, the Christadelphians, the Iglesia de Christos, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Oneness Pentecostals. They all reject Trinity, and therefore a lot of their questions are similar to the way either rabbinic judaism rejects trinity or the way islam rejects trinity as well so here's the question the new testament applies to jesus the language and descriptions which the old testament wisdom literature i.e proverbs 8 and the apocrypha literature i.e wisdom uh syriac and ecclesiasticus apply to wisdom in fact this questioner writes uh, many of the early Christian writers, such as Justin Martyr, Athanasius, etc., believed these texts, specifically Proverbs 8.22, referred to Christ in his pre-human existence. Yet, this uh, uh, person that writes in says, Proverbs 8.22 says that Yahweh created wisdom. Notice the verb. Yahweh created wisdom. So, this writer says, the, uh, the person writing in says, since many Christian writers believed that this reference is about christ doesn't this prove that he christ is not god almighty but the first creature that god made okay so following along with the question the the writer believes that if we follow with the language the way it's naturally understood in many translations to include some of the ancient greek translations and apocryphal writings isn't wisdom a creation of god 
Meaning, if wisdom is Jesus, and since God created wisdom according to an understanding of these passages, then it stands to reason, using my syllogism here, it stands to reason from these two premises that the conclusion is that God created Jesus. Maybe I'll create a little the little syllogism in post-production and flash it on the screen so you can understand what, what I mean by that. All right, let's look at Sam Shamoon's answer. Again, remember, I'm telling I'm spoiling this for you up front in case you get can't follow along with it. He is a Trinitarian Christian, and he does believe that Jesus is the eternal God, yet in human form. So he's arguing from the classic Orthodox Trinitarian perspective, he is not a Jehovah's Witness. He's not going to argue from that perspective, but he is also not a unit, biblical Unitarian. He's not a Oneness Pentecostal. He's not a Jehovah's Witness. He's not. He does not believe that Jesus was created. Let's read his answer. All right. Let's do like this. This might be easier for me. Here's what um, Sam Shamoon says. To begin with, even though the New Testament describes Jesus in language that is reminiscent of the wisdom texts with the early church using Proverbs 8, 22 to 36 to prove Jesus' pre-human existence and generation, the reference itself is not speaking of Christ. Notice right away. You're like, what? doesn't speak of Christ? Is he a Trinitarian? Isn't that what I just taught, that most Trinitarians believe that wisdom is Jesus? That Jesus is wisdom? Even though wisdom is a lady, right, called our sister in the next chapter, right, or the previous chapter, Proverbs chapter 7, uh, wisdom is called our sister. It's just because of the, the word chokhmah in Hebrew, the, the where we get our um, English word wisdom, is feminine in form, so <clears throat> don't get confused. But Sam Shamoon says that uh, he doesn't believe that the reference is uh, speaking to Christ. The context clearly shows the passage that the passage is referring to God's own eternal attribute of wisdom. Ah, he's starting to sound like biblical Unitarianism, but you have to be very careful to understand that he's not a Trinitarian. So let's read... Um, what he has to say. So then he's got this uh, quote from the um, for the verse itself, and I just read it all, but I'll read it again real quick. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? I wisdom dwell in prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The Lord created me with the verb created there being bolded or emphasis, created me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. By the way, as I interject, this passage in Proverbs functions for the Jehovah's Witnesses and other um, Arians like them as sort of proof texts that Jesus is created. So this is one of the proof texts that they use in their argument that Jesus is a creature, that God created him, not just the way we read about him in John 1, 1, where in the beginning was the Word, where the Word was with God, and the Word was a small G-O-D, that's according to the New World Translation that the Jehovah's Witnesses um, uh, carry and um, agree with, but the Jehovah's Witnesses go back to Proverbs 8 here, and they say, look, here it is, right here, both in the Hebrew and in the Greek, God created wisdom, and since wisdom is Jesus, then it stands to reason, using the syllogism, that God created Jesus. That's what they say. All right, so let's keep reading. Uh, this is Sam Shamoon quoting the book of Proverbs. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. Um, 
this is much more than I read in mine, so I'm reading it here for you. When he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, when I uh, then I was beside him. Notice, wisdom is beside God. This is this whole anthropomorphic personification language that God uses when he's talking about either his attributes or he's giving us this inside peek to the complex nature that he is as one God yet more than one person. Kind of going all the way back to the Genesis account where God first dropped the bombshell on human beings by saying, let us make man, let us yeah, let us make man in our image after our likeness, right? Genesis 1.26. Got a video on that. I'll put a little link to it in the description below. I highly encourage you to go back and watch it. Well, who is God talking to when he said, let us create man in our image after our likeness? What's with the plurals, right? God goes on to say, uh, the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil, right? When man reached out and ate the forbidden fruit. God also said, let us go down and confuse their language at the Tower of Babel. Who's God talking to when he said, let us make man in our image? Well, just like the proverbist, the writer of the book of Proverbs can say that wisdom was beside God, that's similar to us understanding that whoever it was that was beside God during the creation account must be one with God because God later goes on to declare emphatically in the book of um, Isaiah, when we get into the lower chapters of the, the 40s, chapters like 40, 41, 42, going up to 45, Isaiah declares God speaking, I am God and there is no other. There are no other beside me. There are none like me. There was none before me. There will be none after me. He emphatically says that there's only one of me. I am he. There is no other. And I am the sole creator. Right? So having that firmly established in our Bibles is extremely important. It is critical to our theology of understanding this, uh, the nature of God when it comes to language like, uh, let us make man, and there I was beside God when he was creating everything. Either God is schizophrenic, right, when he says there's only one of me, but yet he's talking about plurals, or there's this complex nature to God that we can't quite fully grasp, but yet we affirm. We fully affirm it. Even though we can't fully understand God, we nevertheless embrace this complex God who is complex in his nature. So Sam Shamoon continues, quoting from the book of Proverbs, Like a master workman, uh, I was beside God, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his in his inhabit world i think it's i think that might be a typo there and delighting in the sons of men and now my sons listen to me right wisdom still talking happy are those who keep my ways hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it happy is the man who listens to me watching daily at my gates waiting beside my doors for he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the lord but he who misses me injures himself all who hate me love death that's proverbs 8 1 12 and then 22 through 36 from the rsv version of the bible so, what are we to make of this? Well, let's look at another version of um, the way we can understand wisdom as through the lens of Sam Shamoon's view on wisdom from the book of Proverbs. This is Sam Shamoon talking. Solomon is taking an impersonal attribute of God and personifying it, a common literary feature of wisdom literature. The reason why Solomon personified wisdom as a woman is, as I have already mentioned, is because the Hebrew word for 
The Hebrew word for it is chokhmah, and it's feminine in gender. doesn't mean that wisdom is feminine. It just means the word is feminine. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. So don't get too confused. Moreover, Sam Shamoon says the verb for create in verse 22 is kana, which can refer to acquiring, purchasing, getting, etc., just as the following lexicon explains. And then he's got some entry uh, from uh, a well-trusted lexicon source. We've got for kana, which wisdom says uh, God, uh, how God came to be in possession of wisdom, to get, acquire, to create, to buy, possess. In the call form, which is the very root level of uh, the base level of a Hebrew um, root word, the call stem uh, means to get, to acquire, or obtain, um, used of God originating, creating, redeeming his people. Um, it can refer to uh, a possessor, uh, Aviv. Uh, it's used in the Bible where she uh, says, I've, I've gotten a man from God when she finally gives birth to Cain. She says, I've gotten a man from God. I've acquired this man. She uses the same uh, Hebrew word, kana, of acquiring knowledge, like we read in Proverbs here, of wisdom, uh, to buy, to purchase. Uh, I think that shows up in Proverbs as well. In a different form, in the Nephal, it means to be bought, right? So I don't want to confuse you with all the technicalities of Hebrew, but just know that Hebrew goes through different um, forms of the root word moving into different um, forms of verbs uh, being you know the, the inflections and different uh, like uh, tenses of verbs uh, from the simple uh, root word to maybe like a, a present participle or either an active or a passive form of the verb so nephal to be bought and the he feel to cause to possess so um, just looking at the word uh, from more of a technical perspective let's keep reading Sam Shamoon he goes on to say that it is used throughout Proverbs to mean acquire or purchase or get. Notice he's giving alternate translations other than just simply being polarized by the fact that the word can mean um, uh, create or something like that to get. Uh, notice this quote from uh, Proverbs uh, 1.5. Um, quote, the wise men also may hear and increase in learning and the man of understanding acquire skill. In quote, that's Proverbs 1.5. So notice, we don't always have to translate this word as create, like the objectioner mentioned at the very beginning of this particular article, just because one aspect of this verb, kana, can mean to create. It doesn't always mean that. It can mean to be purchased or to get or to acquire, uh, something like that. Here's another um passage this to a time proverbs 4 uh 5 to 7 do quote do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth i like how sam shamun is staying in the same book do not turn away from the words of my mouth get wisdom notice it says get it doesn't say create get wisdom get insight the beginning of wisdom is this get wisdom and whatever you get get insight proverbs 4 5 to 7 again if i were to go back and look up those hebrew words i'm quite sure that he's talking about kana which simply means to acquire or get doesn't always have to mean create context demands what a word means um here's another one proverbs 16 16 again it's always nice to stay in the same book when you're looking at a word doing a little word study it's always beneficial if you can stay in the same book because then you get the writer giving us the the wide range of the different nuances of any given word in uh, question. He who ignores instruction despises himself, but he who heeds admonition gains, and there's the, the word gains there, I believe, is the Hebrew word kana. 
And then the, the, the verse goes on to say to get wisdom, right? There's our, uh, uh, I'm sorry, it is the word get there. Kana, to get wisdom is better than gold. To get understanding, I believe again, kana, to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Notice these words, these verbs of getting, if we were to turn them into create, they just change the what the writer would be trying to say all, all, all together. To create wisdom is better than gold. To create understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. <clears throat> really just doesn't follow from the uh, what the writer is trying to say. And we've got another one here, Proverbs 17, 16. Why should a fool have a price in his hand to buy wisdom? Ah, now we have a different verb, buy or purchase in other versions. Uh, a price to purchase wisdom when he has no mind. Again, it's the same Hebrew word, uh, kana, I'm quite certain. Uh, but it's translated as buy instead of get or even create. Why should a fool have a price in his hand to create wisdom? Right? This just doesn't follow with what I think the writer of the book of Proverbs is, has in mind. Another one, an intelligent mind acquires knowledge, acquires, that's our uh, Hebrew word, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. An intelligent man acquires knowledge? Now we don't even have wisdom in view, right? Switches to an entirely different, what we might call attribute of God or a quality that is to be desired by human beings who don't otherwise have this quality that God himself eternally does possess, namely wisdom and knowledge and things like that. And then uh, we have some more. Sam Shemun's just going to, um, uh, the, the bulk of his answer is really where it should be, which is rooted in the Bible, right? If you, if you don't want to stray in your theology, just keep it centered in what God says and let the Holy Spirit explain it to people, right? Too often we think we quote one verse and then we spend the next hour trying to explain the verse when maybe we should have spent uh, 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 55 minutes quoting the Bible and five minutes explaining uh, what, we under, what we just read. So I, I applaud Sam Shamoon for doing what he's doing. Another verse, Proverbs 19.8. He who gets wisdom loves himself. Notice gets, I believe, is the kana. He who keeps understanding will prosper. And then um, uh, uh, 20 verse 14. It is bad. It is bad, says the buyer. But when he goes away, then he boasts. And I think it's the word buyer there is our um, uh, word kana. And then our last verse in his quote from the book of Proverbs. I think he just went throughout the entire book of Proverbs and pulled up all of the references uh, to the word kana there. Buy truth and do not sell it. Buy wisdom, instruction, and understanding. And this time I, I am going to stop and look up this one because I just want to make sure you understand how odd it would be if we translated this as create. So Proverbs 23.23. So here in Proverbs 8.23, um, we have... Um, let me, I'm sorry, let me go back to verse 22 here. So we have here, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. And the root English word possessed is over here as the Hebrew word kana. Adonai kanani rishit darko kedem mif mif alive me'atz. And this word that I've got highlighted on your screen, kana, if I just click on it, and bring up the Strong's Concordance. You can see it's Strong's number 7069, spelled Q-A-N-A-H by one version, Kana. 
you could also transliterate it with a K, but um, Kana, it means here you can just see some very short uh, dictionary definitions to get or to acquire. Same thing down here. It's a prime root, a primitive root uh, to get or to acquire. But look at all the ways that it can be translated, at least in this version of the Bible. Acquire, acquired, acquires, bought, buy, buyer, buying, buys, formed, gain, acquisition, gain, get, gets, gotten, owner, possess, possessor, purchased, purchaser, recover, redeem, sold, and surely buy. So having said that, when I go back to this quote from Proverbs 23, 23, and I use this version of my tool to go to Proverbs 23, and then pull up verse 23, then we see where it says, buy truth and do not sell it, get wisdom and instruction and understanding. And over here, it says, emet kene. Well, what is Kane? If I click on it, you can see that it is, scroll to it, Strong's number 7069. In fact, now I've got two tabs open just to prove that it is not the same tab that I clicked on one before, and here's the other one. So you can see I kind of moved them out of the way so you can see there. All right, so it is the same root Hebrew word. In fact, um, it's the word used in all of the examples that uh, Sham Sam Shamoon was was showing for us. So, watch this. What if I said, create truth and do not sell it. Create wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Changes the verse altogether. It changes what Solomon's trying to convey. Create it? Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't work that way. So, if we're saying that Kanaal must be always translated as create, and back in our uh, Proverbs um, 8, uh, 22, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way. The Lord created me at the beginning of his way before his works of old. That, that doesn't follow from um, all of the other ways that Kana can be used. So let's just be fair and be honest and be biblical, right? Let's be Bereans. Don't just start rattling off what you think the verse means without having done your homework looking through the original languages. And I think it's something that uh, Sam Shamoon is doing for us here. Let's finish out his uh, commentary. He says, in the context of Proverbs 8.22, the verb is more literally translated not as create, but as begotten or birth, i.e. Yahweh begot or birthed me as the beginning of his ways. This can be readily seen from a more literal re rendering of Proverbs 8, 22 to 25. And so he has, Yahweh himself begat me as the beginning of his way, the first of his acts of old. From eternity, I was appointed from the start before the beginning of earth. When there were no watery deeps, I was brought forth as with labor pains. Notice, I got to stop and interject. Notice that Sam Shamoon is highlighting the fact that in poetic fashion, the writer brings in a different set of verbs, but brings in this analogy of a baby being brought forth as with labor pains. That's why Sam Shamoon says that we can utilize this verb kana as, um, what did he say earlier? As being begotten or birthed. Meaning, um, it's poetic. Again, it's as if God pulled it out of himself, where babies come from inside of other people. God pulled wisdom out of himself and utilized wisdom as an agent to create the rest of the universe, or even gave credit to this agency uh, known as wisdom. And this, of course, is highly reminiscent of not just 
um, the uh, John 1-1 account where the beginning was with God and was with God, right? John's um, Logos was both with God face-to-face, face-to-face -face with God in intimate relationship, but also this um, Logos went on to become Jesus, meaning Jesus was brought into the world through the birth process and so we see the man known as jesus who was in fact born albeit supernaturally born so there's nothing wrong with us looking at this personification of wisdom in uh proverbs here as being brought forth as with labor hymns, and as i continue when there were no springs heavily charged with water before the mountains themselves had been fashioned before the hills i was brought forth as with labor pains so again this kind of imagery of giving birth, which, by the way, I, I might also add conveniently fits in with uh, Trinitarian theology, which teaches the eternal begotten Son, right? Eternal begetting, as well as the idea that God has spoken of His Son in the book of Psalms as, um, Thou art my Son, today I have begotten thee, right? Psalm 2, verse 7. Uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, and I'll flash it on the screen and post just so you can see it as well. God speaking of His Son, today I've begotten thee. Speaking of the Messianic King that he's establishing uh, on the throne, which uh, in the uh, near-term uh, partial fulfillment refers to the Davidic King, David himself, but in the fullness of the sense obviously refers to Jesus, uh, the Son that is quoted in the New Testament as the only begotten of the Father, right? Uh, John uh, chapter 1 uh, gives us that. In fact, let me just show it to you real quick since I've got John pulled up. Um, when we get down into John's uh, uh, prologue here, uh, and he talks about in verse um, uh, 8, he uh, that John himself was not the light, but he came to testify about this light. He's talking about the true light that came to the world that enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. He's still speaking of the Word, which became Jesus, right? The Word which became a human being. Uh, he came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But when we get down to verse um, 14, we have John saying, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? This incarnation. And we saw his glory, glory as of the who? Only begotten from the Father, right? The monogenus, this um, begotten word, that's a Greek word, right? there that's the um the the only begotten that i'm uh, referring to but in the english the only begotten begotten but wait a minute if the word was eternal why is god using begotten language ah because the son has this personification i'm sorry this um um uh, this uh, figurative language or um, characteristic language or symbolic language um, where we're using this idea of God bringing the Son into the world through the birth process, just like fathers give birth to children, so it makes sense that the Father would give birth to the Son. But remember, it's an eternal begetting, because the Word was eternal, just like wisdom was eternally part of God's attributes. So, begotten goes all the way back to the Psalm 2-7 passage, Thou art my Son today, I've begotten thee. And so, um, that's the language that's picked up in the Testament to describe Jesus as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The begotten of the Father is the same one that's spoken of by John himself again in John 3, which is what, John three sixteen, the most um, 
well well-known verse i guess in the bible for god so loved the world that he gave his only what begotten son begotten son so let's go back to sam shamun so he goes on to say that the text is obviously speaking figuratively on how yahweh acquired wisdom i.e yahweh got it by begetting or birthing it in order to use it to create everything we know that that it is figurative since yahweh doesn't literally give birth in labor pains right even the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Biblical Unitarians would have to agree that no matter how you define God, there wasn't any physical begetting going on, right? There wasn't any thing coming out of God like babies come out of women, right? That's not what took place. Um, I hope that's what you're understanding. Otherwise, you're getting a really warped perspective of exactly how God functions. Let's continue. The following texts make it clear that wisdom was birthed for the purpose of being used by Yahweh to create. All right, so now we have another passage from the book of Proverbs. He, he reads it, quote, Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gets understanding. For, for, for the gain from it is better than gain from silver and its profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Let's keep reading. Long life is in her right hand. In her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called happy. The Lord by wisdom, now look, notice the bold words. The Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the deep forths, the deeps broke forth and the clouds dropped down with a uh, drop down the dew. That's Proverbs 3, 13 through 20. So we see that Sam Shamun is highlighting the fact that, again, Proverbs, uh, the, the book of Proverbs is using wisdom as an attribute that God symbolically birthed or brought forth out of his tool belt or brought forth out of himself. He reached within himself, grabbed hold of wisdom, pulled it out as a tool, as an agent, and used that tool to create the rest of the universe. And it's that same kind of symbolic language that is probably inspiring John to write that this word is that which God used to create the rest of the universe. Paul goes on to write how that um, Jesus is uh, he whom God uh, who who created the world uh, for by him and for him and through him were all things created, right? He writes in the book of Colossians and the book of uh, Corinthians and things like that. Let's keep reading Sam Shamoon and finish our study tonight. I'm going a little bit over, but it's necessary so that we can get through justice one part. And we're done with this. We're done with Proverbs tonight, okay? David in the Psalms wrote that God created everything that had been made in wisdom. Let's read David's uh, notes here. He set, he set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. Pause. Who's the he? Is it God? Is it Jesus? From David's perspective, we don't know exactly how God had articulated himself to David to the point that David could say uh, without question that God was that David was writing about a second person known as the Word of God, like John was writing when he first got when he finally got to his book. I don't know that that's exactly the case that David could say those things, but it's not necessary because when we look at at answering the question from the Old Testament perspective, who is God? And we take the apostolic scriptures and we use the, uh, the, the extended revelation of the apostolic scriptures to inform us of God's identity in the Old Testament, in the Tanakh. 
then we can say that it is God who had, we can answer the question, who created the universe? We, uh, that's the question, not who is God, but who created the universe? Who is the creator? And I've been using this graphic on the screen a few times, um, just so you guys can understand. And I'll flash it in post. God is creator and everything else is creation. And using the simplistic uh, worldview from a Hebraic mindset that God is the sole creator, and that everything else is God's creation, right? There's only two categories. There's only two spheres of existence. There are only two um, realities, uh, 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 what we might call um, dimensions, uh, in this picture that I'm describing in the Hebraic worldview. There's God on the left side who's creator. There's creator who's God on the left side of the graphic that you're looking at in post. And there's creation, which is everything else on the right side. Well, underneath the category of creation, or I'm sorry, of creator on the left side, we find God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when David says, He set the earth on his foundations, David could entirely be having God in his mind when he says God. But by the time we get to the New Testament, we realize that Jesus is very God veiled in flesh. And we have no conflict understanding that David wrote that God set the earth on his foundations as the he, yet this same he who is God is Jesus in the New Testament also, without displacing or removing God the Father from his pedestal as God. You understand what I'm saying? It's because in the common Trinitarian mindset, God is Father and God is Son. They're both one God. So, who's the he here in David's psalm? Well, he is God. If you try to say it's he is the Father exclusively, well, then you have no biblical warrant for doing so. We can't say that he is only the Father here. But he set the earth on his... I mean, it's it's. if I look it up, it's probably the word Elohim. I don't know for sure uh, which... Um, if there's a Hebrew word here uh, underlying here, but he set the earth on his foundation, speaking of God, so that it should never be moved. So we're talking about the creation account, obviously. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. At your rebuke, they fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. David continues, the mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You, speaking of God, set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heaven dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains, speaking of God. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of men. Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of the Lord, this is again poetic now, David switches now and gives us Yahweh's uh, covenant name, YHVH, the Tetragrammaton's name, which is rendered in English versions, usually as all caps L-O-R-D. The trees of the Lord are watered abundant, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees, the high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are for are a refuge for the rock badgers. He, who's the he? It's God. He made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting. You, who's the you? God. You make darkness and it's night. Then, I'm sorry, when all the beasts of the forest creep about, the young lions roar for their place, seeking their f for their food from God. Right? Who? We Now we have the word God there, which is probably either L 
in the in the poetry literature, um, in the writings, the Kaduvim, uh, the shortened form of Elohim finds a lot of usage. El or Ale, if you want to pronounce it that way, um, for the E part. Um, but here it shows us God, so it's either Ale or uh, Elohim. Um, David continues, when the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dreams. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. Now watch this. He said all of that. He quoted the entire passage so that we can see the climax. Are you ready for it? O Lord, which is all caps, L-O-R-D, which is Yahweh's tetragrammaton name. O Lord, how manifold are your works. You ready for this? In wisdom you, I'm sorry, in wisdom have you made them all. Whose wisdom? God is wisdom and wisdom is God. God uses wisdom as his tool, as his agent, and yet it is the eternal God who created everything, and wisdom is that utilized tool um, that's uh, uh, articulated by the book of Proverbs, or the book of Psalms here. In wisdom, you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. That's Psalm 104, uh, 1 through 24 out of the ESV. So, in closing, and I believe that uh, we're drawing uh, Sam's article to a close, the fact that wisdom was used by God to create every created thing shows that wisdom itself is not created since it existed before creation this leads us to our next point which again if this is beginning to sound like john 1 1 then it should right that's the whole point so i don't want you to lose uh, sight of that My, um sam chamun says it is important to know that not every act of begetting or creation necessarily implies that the thing creator begotten didn't exist prior to that moment for instance, the verb kana is used in reference to Eve giving birth to Cain. And I referenced this earlier, but now you can see it. Now, Adam knew his wife Cain, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten, there's our Hebrew verb kana, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, notice what Sam Shamoon um, uh, brings to our uh, perspective. It is obvious that Cain didn't come into existence the moment that Eve gave birth or produced him, since he was already alive and existing in his mother's room for at least nine months, right? Hello? Sorry about that. Uh, he says, this demonstrates that the verb kana doesn't necessarily refer to creating someone or something from nothing. So Eve did not create Cain, and then he popped out of her belly, right? It didn't work like that. But this verb kana can refer to something or someone that already existed and was then brought forth or birthed. So, are you noticing the imagery of bringing forth, as in moving from one sphere of existence to another sphere of existence for the purpose of um, of uh, performing a task or uh, being recognized uh, for a different uh, form of existence, etc., etc. So, let's keep reading. In light of the foregoing, the question then becomes, from where did Yahweh beget wisdom? Did he beget it by creating it out of nothing, ex nihilo, or did he beget it out of his own being or out of himself? Proverbs itself provides a clue for, and this is really getting into the uh, John 1-1 part, so just follow along because this gets fascinating, especially if you understand that the word logos in the Greek is the Greek word for the English word word, which is rooted in the Hebrew word um, uh, davar, which is where we get the word speak or say, and the Aramaic word, which is um, 
uh what is it i'm drawing a blank what is the aramaic word um oh boy if i remembered i'll tell you but the, the, all of these three words the hebrew the aramaic and the greek they all are rooted in the word for word or speak or say they're all familiar with this terminology of word which can be written or spoken but this idea of word um is fascinating when we think about god speaking as in in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth and the earth was one formed and void and darkness was on the surface of the deep and the and the spirit of god hovered on the surface of the waters and what does the verse three say and god said yeah god speaks god said let there be light and there was light and so there's this idea that god speaks when he wants to create so look at the proverbs 2 verse 6 for the lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding so where did god pull wisdom out of did he pull it out of his gut like babies come out of did he pull it out of his belly what's uh sam shamun going to hint at he says the wisdom which yahweh gives is the knowledge and understanding that comes from god's mouth comes from his mouth the reference is essentially saying that yahweh produced wisdom out of his own mouth which shows that wisdom wasn't created from nothing since it existed within yahweh himself in other words yahweh always had wisdom as an attribute which he then produced or brought forth in order to create and to give to others in other words the word came out of his mouth it didn't come out of his belly like human babies come out of human mothers and so um Wow, I wish I could remember that that the uh, uh, Aramaic word for uh, uh, for um, word uh, the the ah uh, it's all right on the tip of my tongue, but anyway it's it's important f uh, for our study and I'll put I'll put it in post production since I can't remember it at the, off the moment but the idea is that the the Hebrew word the Aramaic word and the Greek word they all have this sense of God speaking at the creation story and it's not just the wisdom in proverbs that probably drew that john was able to draw from when he wrote um that in the beginning was the word the word was with god the word was god but he was also able to draw from the fact that the creation story itself has god speaking all of these um words to bring things to pass and let there be and god said let there be you know and there was i mean god could have wiggled his nose or crossed his hands and blinked nodded his head or um you know you've seen like bewitched where uh, something happens when the genie um magically makes something appear god could have done that he could have like twink uh, twiddled twid fidgeted his fingers or um waved his finger or something like that and everything showed up or he didn't have to make any action at all but moshe records that he spoke so this is very significant for our theology as it pertains to jesus being the logos Jesus being the word of God made flesh. Jesus being that which God utilized in agency fashion. When the words came out of God's mouth and God said, let there be, and God said, that was Jesus right there, the word in action. All of creation springing forth from the very word of God, from the very mouth of God. Jesus is that word. That's what we're getting at here. And God didn't have to create that word. Otherwise, what is God dumb? Meaning, he can't even speak where did he even get the words to create the word right it just gets illogical when we try to think that god had to create something first in order to then use that tool to create the universe like man has to create a tool before he can use that tool to create other objects he can't just create objects out of nothing he has to create the tools that he needs to even create the objects that he's going to use 
uh, uh, he has to create tools that are necessary to create the objects. So the tools come first, but not so with God, right? His tools are eternal. So basically, Sam Shemun in closing says, what this implies is that Proverbs is using figurative language to describe how Yahweh birthed his own eternal attribute of wisdom from himself in creating everything, right? Jesus was um, birthed from God in that sense that Jesus is the Son and God is the Father. Um, Thus, even in the even if the text were referring to Christ, this would only prove that the creedal statements were correct in stating that Jesus was eternally begotten before all creation, begotten, not made. And then um, he closes, and then we're done. Yet, as it stands, this text isn't referring to Christ, and this is, again, a different Trinitarian perspective uh, than the Trinitarians who say this is Christ. But I'm fine with going with both. I, I, I'm not, in other words, I'm fine with accepting either aspect. Those Christians who are Trinitarians who say that wisdom is Jesus, based on the, the passage out of Colossians, and those Christians, Trinitarians, who say that wisdom isn't Jesus, but it's merely personification, similar to the way the, the uh, biblical Unitarians describe wisdom. But... Sam Shemun says, yet as it stands, this test isn't referring to Christ, nor is it saying that wisdom was created from nothing. It is simply a poetic description of how Yahweh used his own eternal attribute of wisdom to create all things. And then he's got some recommended um, links, and then the link down at the very bottom, uh, back to the um, Answering Islam homepage. So I'll leave it right there, just so we can finish. So what have we learned by looking at Proverbs? In closing, Biblical Unitarian says, it is wisdom personified, nothing more, nothing less. Wisdom is not Jesus. Jesus is not wisdom in that regard. The book of Proverbs is simply describing an eternal attribute of God that God utilized to create the world. God is the sole creator. End of story. Trinitarian, one version of Trinitarian um, theology comes along and says, no, wisdom is actually Jesus. Jesus is wisdom, and therefore it is wisdom being spoken of in uh, Jesus being spoken of in his pre-incarnate form, described as wisdom that God is um, using to create the world in agency fashion, and it is the eternal word of God, the eternal wisdom of God, i.e. Jesus. Uh, in other words, Jesus did not have a beginning. He was not created. He was simply utilized by God, brought forth, begotten, using the, the, the biblical sense of the word begotten, uh, when, it, when it refers to God, to bring wisdom into the picture so that God can utilize wisdom as the agency uh, used to create the world. That's one version of Trinitarian theology. And then the other version that we looked at tonight is a Trinitarian understanding that, yes, it's, all, it's closer to what the biblical Unitarian says. Um, this is wisdom in its personification form. It's not that it is referring to Christ. It's just referring to um, wisdom in personification using that particular um, style of writing. But from a Trinitarian perspective, we do believe that Jesus is the eternal God that existed alongside of God. And that what the New Testament does for us, is, and I'm speaking from Sam Shamoon's perspective, is that the New Testament simply gives us the complete picture of what the Tanakh was uh implying or hinting at or speaking of in mystery form. Remember, the incarnation is a mystery. We didn't know fully how God could be man and man could be God in the person of Jesus until the incarnation happened before our very eyes. And then the biblical writers of the apostolic scriptures actually wrote down the details according to what the Holy Spirit told them to write down. And now we have the words of the Bible, the apostolic scripture, the New Testament. And now we can say it with assurance, um, with affirmation, 
and with um, perfect uh, conviction that Jesus is very God. Uh, Jesus is the creator, uh, and therefore we can understand what John meant when he said, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, but yet the Word was God, full deity, fully divine, uh, not lacking uh, in any way. So that'll do it for the look at Proverbs 8.23. Uh, as I mentioned um, earlier, let me scroll back up to the top. Since we've been working our way through Biblical Unitarians' passages and utilizing their listing, we just finished Proverbs 8.23. So next time, ready to turn to Isaiah 7.14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And then the verse goes on to talk about um you know the, the 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 virgin birth and things like that is this jesus is this not we'll talk about that but that'll do it for a trinitarian response to biblical unitarianism let's close in prayer abba i bless your name what a blessing and a privilege to be able to share my thoughts with other people with the other students with um anyone who happens upon these youtube videos or listens to these podcasts and is able to sit and study with me lord i don't have all the answers which is why i rely on you which is why i also rely on the biblical insights from other people that you are raising up to share biblical truths um we've got to be um aware that we can't be expected to understand everything in and of ourselves we've got to work together uh, as a body and that's the way you designed it you you yourself um gave us the different members of the body preachers and teachers and pastors and and prophets and and evangelists and 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 uh singers and and songwriters and musicians and and those people who are brought into the body to equip the body to bring us to this knowledge and understanding of who you are and to be better equipped and to be to grow into the full man that is supposed to be mature and equipped and able to to be an ambassador for you and i'm kind of paraphrasing a passage that many of you are familiar with but lord in my closing prayer let me just um, say how grateful i am to be a part of this this great community that is spread out around the world that is preparing themselves for the end time scenarios that is preparing themselves to meet our uh, lord and master yeshua when he's when he returns to planet earth someday to establish his thousand year kingdom here on earth and then usher us into the eternal state Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for calling us out and calling us into your family and for doing for us what we couldn't do ourselves, namely setting us free from our own sin and shame. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who illuminates the passage and allows us to understand it. And Lord, it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit in us that we can look at the scriptures and come to an understanding and be able to affirm the truths of Trinity and the difficult topics and things like that. So thank you, Lord, uh, for your faithfulness. Continue to protect us and raise us up as we know that you will. And we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory. Bashem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you.